0: Oh, <laughs> oh, fans, as always, I'm your host, Dalton Thieneman. have got a great one for you this week. We caught up with Kalamazoo gold ball winner and U.S. Open wildcard entry Patrick Kipson. Uh, he actually was in Michigan, so he's already at Kalamazoo, but this was recorded right before that weekend, and uh, Kip talks about his experience training down at the USTA facilities in Florida, and then also about his trip to Europe this summer where he played in the uh, Junior French Open and also the Junior Wimbledon. Be sure to check that out. Uh, We also released a compilation of Chris Eubanks, his tournament at the Western Southern and his first qualification for the ATP 1000 level event there. So check that out on the site. We've also got a few other videos coming up, uh, so stay tuned for those. We're going to be launching a video of the compilation of the entire Western and Southern this Saturday. So watch for that on the site. Also, this Wednesday and Thursday, we'll be dropping an article and interview with Zane Khan. Who, um, as many of you know, just turned pro earlier this year. So be sure to check that out this week. And now for my conversation with US Open wildcard entry and gold ball winner at Kalamazoo, Patrick Kipson. Enjoy, guys. Today
1: on Cracked Rackets, we have the pleasure of interviewing Patrick Kipson from North Carolina. He is the junior Wimbledon semifinalist from 2017, and he's had a uh, phenomenal tennis career so far. So, we're excited to get, a, get to know Patrick a little more. Thanks, Patrick, for coming on.
2: Thanks, Dalton, for having me.
1: Absolutely. That's, so, uh we'll get this going right from the start here. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from?
2: I'm from Greenville, North Carolina. Um it's a pretty small town about hour and a half east of Raleigh, which is a pretty big city in North Carolina. There's a college there called ECU. It's not that big, it's kind of just a you know, one of those local things. But um
1: East East Carolina is East Carolina
2: uh, University.
1: And they've had, their football programs had a couple big upsets yeah. the last couple yeah, years. Yeah, right?
2: they have a decent football team.
1: Yeah, they're like the Purple Pirates or something. Yeah, shit. the Pirates, yeah, <laughs> go Pirates. There you go, represent, got to throw yeah. them out there. Uh, so how far is that from, like, where you are originally from? That's
2: actually, so ECU is pretty much, like, my next-door neighbor. I'm, like, five minutes from there. Um, I actually just moved up to Raleigh. My dad got a job here, so... Um, but for me, it didn't really matter because I was spending so much time in Florida. I was in Boca before the center in Orlando was built. And now that Orlando's done, I was, I've been training down there in Orlando.
1: Nice. So when, when did you first go down to Florida? Cause I know, you know, right before this, we were talking a little bit, um, you know, you've been training most recently at the new facility in Orlando, mm-hmm. but when did you start training in Boca? Was that just for, uh, you know, part-time or was that? That was I. So I went down there for the first time when I was 12.
2: There were some camps being run by some national coaches down there, and they bring in a couple of kids. And I guess they kind of liked me because they kept they kept bringing me back. And then
1: um, <laughs> at, before, at that point, were you like, "What's going on here?" Like, I didn't yeah, feel, uh... I mean, I was
2: pretty excited because you know it's a, it's it's great what they have going on down there, and it's it's a good opportunity. So I started training there pretty much. Full time when I was twelve. Still come home like maybe once a month because you know obviously at twelve it's not easy to be away from home one hundred percent. So I I started coming home like once a month and yeah things worked pretty well for me down there. i Had some good coaches so it was all good.
1: Wait, so were you doing school down there as well? Do they have like a I was doing go-
2: online school and and they kind of supervise you. They give you like some class hours. There was a teacher up there in the classroom who kind of helped you out.
1: you needed help and
2: kind of just watched you and make sure you did your work. So so know. that was
1: since you were 12. So you were what, like sixth grade?
2: Something sixth like grade. that.
1: Yeah. Holy cow. Okay. So, I mean, was that when it all clicked for you when you were like, yeah, you know, I, I realized that, that keep inviting me back. I've got something here. Uh, you know, I, I can be an elite level player.
2: Yeah. And I mean, that-, that was kind of the goal is to, you know, to get down to the USTA and kind of make yourself recognized and see, what, you know, kind of what the best coaches in the country have to say about you. So it was helpful for me to get positive feedback, kind of some belief in there at a young age. And, yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, when I was 12 and things started getting serious that, you know, maybe I can make a, a career out of this and you know, see how far I can get with it.
1: Absolutely. So down down in Boca, you know, growing up, were there players and coaches from all around the world or was it just the country or was it a little bit of both?
2: It was, uh, I have to say most of the coaches were probably foreign looking back. Yeah. I think most of them were South American. There were some Europeans in there. Yeah. I think the coaching, the coaching was mostly foreign um, for whatever reason. I guess Patrick McInerney thought that those coaches were, you know, the ones he thought were best fit to coach that group of players. Sure, um, but the players were purely American since it's the federation you know it's uh it's only Americans allowed there,
1: yeah, so how many other players were down there with you and you know with the u s c a sanction you know in in that facility was it and was it just twelve year olds or was it all ages? It was all ages from from my age from twelve year olds to the dorms held
2: people until they were eighteen years old, so there was you know Kids all the way up till 18, and there were some pros that um, trained there as well. Just couldn't stay in the dorms because they were too old. Um, <laughs> Ryan Harrison, been; okay. he was there for a little bit. Jack Saw came in and out for a little bit, trained with uh, Jay Berger, um, Bjorn Frantangelo, Mitchell Kruger, some guys like that. So, yeah, there's guys from my age until guys in their 20s.
1: So was it pretty normal walking around, you know, going to practice or conditioning or whatever it may be and seeing one of those guys? Like it was just, a, you know, the everyday routine, seeing a pro on court, like beside you or on the other deck? I
2: mean, at first it was it was like, well, you know, there's so and so. But as I got older and as I got more used to that environment, then, yeah, it was just kind of like, you know, I got used to it. And I think it's uh, it's actually helped me down the road.
1: Because you don't have that intimidation factor which right. you see these guys no intimidation, across the that kind of,
2: I've seen what they've been doing. You know, I've seen what works. So, you know, we're trying to copy those guys a little bit. Work yeah. ethic, stuff like that.
1: That's cool. So tell us how you originally got into the game. Was it, is it a family thing? No, actually, neither of my parents played. And
2: basically no one in my family ever played tennis. One of my best friends growing up wanted to do something when I was like six, seven years old. So... His mom said, why don't you guys take tennis lessons? And Before you know it, we were playing tennis. Um, we both got pretty good. We were actually number one and two in the state and under 10s when we were like eight years old. So we got pretty good pretty fast. I don't know if you've heard of Tommy Paul. Oh, yeah. But oh, his, yeah. Da- his stepdad owned, uh, owned an academy in Greenville, where I lived. So his stepdad was actually one of my first coaches. told taught me how to play a little bit.
1: No way. So it's in yeah, the Tommy- no world. So is Tommy from the area then too, or did he?
2: He is. is He's from Greenville, and he kind of did the same thing. kind of went to Florida when he was 12, 13, and then I think he's been in Florida ever since.
1: Sounds like you're on a nice track there. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we talked about this before, but you've obviously had a a pretty solid summer yourself. Mm -hmm. Tell the Cracked Rackets community about uh, your European tour and and how that came to be and where you started and, and where you finished.
2: Yeah, so basically we did a went with the USTA for about two months. Um, We started in Romania in a future there, so um, we played a future in Romania, and we played a couple of we played one junior event in Italy in Milan, and then we played. um, I guess from Milan we had about a week off, so they went to Barcelona to get some training in on the clay, Um, just polish you know polish some stuff up and put one good week of work in before the French and then we went to the French. Then after oh, your French. first your
1: first junior French Open,
2: right? First junior French Open, yeah. How um, was that
1: walking in there for the It first was time. I mean it was
2: it was really cool, you know, to go and play there. It's I mean obviously like the courts are like, you know, so so nice and it's my first obviously first French Open, so it was a great experience. Unfortunately I didn't do as well as I wanted to. I lost first round tough three setter but I thought that kind of set me up for the for the second half of the trip, which was probably my better half of the trip, um, making the semis at Wimbledon and getting to the final of the future and doubles, um, playing some pretty good tennis. The second part of that trip, yeah. So I so, give a lot so, of credit to that.
1: So I mean, have you played a lot on the grass surface? Because that's that has to be an adjustment moving from the French, the red clay, moving over to the grass. Um, yeah, I, hadn't, you I know, hadn't
2: played at all on grass actually. Really? Um, so we came from we went from Germany we were playing a future there super slow clay court super slow balls and the next day I was in London playing with Slavengers. which are is rocks I and mean,
1: then you know
2: the court is fast and it's hard to move and so probably vision wise sure. it
1: has to be an adjustment too right because the yeah. ball's you know shooting you know darting off
2: yeah uh, for sure
1: so you had not played on grass at all not uh, at all Sounds like your game translated pretty well, though.
2: Yeah, I think I have a good game for for the grass. I hit the I can hit the ball pretty flat when I want to, and I think I, my transition game is is pretty good as well. So you throw that in there with a good you know a good slice body serve, and you know it's kind of a recipe for a good grass player if you can keep your head together. So so yeah, I thought I played you know some pretty good tennis on the grass.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you had to making it to the semis, right? But yeah. was was there anybody in the draw when you first saw the draw? You're like, you know, this is going to be tough. Or was it just one match at a time? Uh, what was your approach?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mean, there's
1: two guys in that tournament.
2: You know, no one really wanted to play. I think, uh, and those were the guys that got to the finals. I think, you know, Axel Geller, um, big kid from Argentina who won the week before in Roehampton as the one-up tournament. Um, And the kid that I lost to in the semis who was coming off of 225K futures, I think he went finals back-to-back, and he's a strong player, and he won it. So, I mean, I think his game is pretty good for grass, but um, it was kind of a match-by-match type thing, especially on grass. It's so unpredictable, and yeah, I mean, it's it's totally unpredictable. So, match-by-match was kind of my my, uh, approach to the tournament.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we've been talking about this, uh, you know, you enjoyed Spain while you've been over there the last two summers. Um, you've been all over the world traveling for tennis. What's a spot that you love to play a, a tournament or even just a city that you've traveled to through your travels? I really
2: like Nice, France. Uh, I was over there playing a couple of money tournaments about three years ago. The USGA took us on a trip over there to France to play some, some men's opens and I think one tennis Europe tournament.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, Nice and is really in southern, Shut southern up France. France? Yeah.
2: yeah, it was beautiful. Um, I can
1: only imagine.
2: Yeah, that was one of my favorite places.
1: Um, Hopefully, they gave you some free time to uh, enjoy the countryside
2: yeah, a little bit. Yeah, we saw, <laughs> saw some good stuff. Obviously, Paris and London are just super nice as well.
1: Did you? Yeah, I have
2: to say, niche is my favorite.
1: Yeah, so growing up in in Greenville, North Carolina, did you ever dream of, you know, playing all over the world like this? Was this something that you thought would happen, or?
2: Not at all. No, I didn't. I didn't expect it. But uh, as I got older and as I got better, then I was thinking, hey, you know, maybe maybe I can give this a shot, and you know, maybe it's gonna maybe I'll have a good career in the juniors, and hopefully I can make it in the pros. So. It's been kind of a stepping stool up the ladder, and hopefully, I can keep stepping up.
1: Love it, love it. And and right now, you're two in the country in your class, right? Uh-huh. I think uh, so, yeah. Around that range. Uh, what kind of goals have you set for yourself, short term uh, and even long term? I mean, do you have like a tournament result? Is is it you know uh, somewhere in the collegiate recruiting process, or what? Uh-huh. You know, what, what are the next steps for? Uh, Patrick I think
2: and- you know my my main goal is to is to be a pro tennis player. You're making a living around, you know, 120 in the world. So breaking, you know, trying to get to top 120 as fast as I can, which obviously is going to take, you know, a decent amount of time. But, you know, that's that's my goal is to make money playing pro tennis. And then once you make that top 100, I think, you know, a lot of things can happen. I think that's when it comes down to the small details. And then guys, you see guys shoot up, you know, 50, top 50, top 30, top 20, and they just keep going. So that's, you know, that's my goal for the long term. Short term is basically just, you know, keep improving and keep working on things in my game that I think can can help me achieve that long term goal.
1: Is there a certain area of your game or conditioning or or on Mm -hmm. on the nutritional side that you're focusing on right now? Mm -hmm. A lot of fitness,
2: trying to get stronger, you know, especially in my legs. Because, you know, it's, it's different playing juniors than going out there and playing a full-grown man. So I think, you know, that's, that's been really big to me, and that's been key, actually. And even helping me play in the juniors is, you know, being, being physically fit, being strong um, in the legs and in between the years too. So, you know, that's kind of been what I've been focusing on.
1: I like that you brought that up because every tennis player knows, especially, you know, getting to the elite junior, collegiate, and professional level, Mm-hmm. How important uh, the mental aspect is in the game because it's, sure. I mean it's a pretty pretty trying and frustrating sport at times. It is. Um,
2: it is. It really is.
1: What are you doing to prepare yourself? There is, is it mm-hmm. just that experience in that moment, or is there something that you can do to prepare for that before? I work
2: with a sports psychologist that the USTA provides. Okay. Um, his name is Larry Lauer, and we've been working together for about a year or so. He's really helped me, you know, as, as far as that aspect goes, giving me things to do in certain moments and trying to focus on these things during the match instead of these things. Um, so in my head, when I'm playing in, in big matches, I kind of, I think I know, you know, what I should and shouldn't be thinking and what I should and shouldn't be doing. But I think a lot of it as well is just experience, you know, going out there and playing in the singles at Wimbledon. Even though I lost, is is giving me a ton of experience and, that whole week gave me a ton of experience. So it's just, you know, weeks like that, matches like that, venues like that that I think grow you as a player.
1: So what <laughs> what so what's your correct uh, racket situation? I hope
2: uh, I hope Head doesn't read this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh no, I, I try not to not to break too many rackets. My coach gets mad, so uh, every now and then i let one I'll let one slide. Probably say like maybe four or five a year
1: yeah and mostly so it not, it's because of the slippery grip right it was hot outside yeah, <laughs> <It was slippery. laughs> yeah they fall out of
2: the hand on the serve quite a bit
1: <laughs> <laughs> like that like all right so uh piggybacking on that question what's your most embarrassing moment on the court recently is there a certain thing that comes to mm-hmm. mind
2: or? i think
1: it wasn't maybe embarrassing
2: just kind of kind of weird was my my first challenge at wimby i challenged the serve and it was like a foot inside the service line. I guess, I mean, it looked close to me, but I guess I was just like completely off or looking somewhere else because the challenge system showed that was like a foot inside the line. So that was kind of, I was playing and court 12. So kind of a, kind of a, you know, it's like the fifth biggest stadium court there. So it was a good crowd. I was playing a British guy and I got a good laugh out of, out of the people that came out.
1: <laughs> no jeers, hopefully. But, uh, <laughs> But, I mean, you know, like you said, it's kind of an adjustment with uh, vision-wise how the ball comes off the court. And yeah. I have always said, you know, even watching up close at some of the ATP events that I, I don't think so, those are completely accurate.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird. Later, I mean, I was challenging. I played three matches in court 12, so I, you know, challenged more and more. And a couple of balls I challenged just to challenge. I didn't even think they were in, and they ended up being in. And then others I thought were close, and like that one was not even close. So I don't, I don't know about the whole challenge thing. I mean, I guess, I guess it's as accurate as it can be, but maybe, yeah. maybe we just I know. see things differently.
1: Yeah. And I know Fed's been a, a major critic of that whole system she for a has, while yeah. too. And if, if the goat is is critical, I guess we oh, can be too, right? That's right. <laughs> Last, last question before the rapid fire segment, what is the weirdest thing we'd find in your bag right now?
2: I've got like a little, like a little, maybe like a four or five inch, like teddy bear type thing that says, I love Berlin. Okay. That some girl gave me when I played a tournament in Germany.
1: Okay. Shout out to <laughs> so her, keep, wherever she yeah, is. Yeah. Shout out to her. <laughs>
2: Don't know her name, but shout out to her.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, okay. And I keep, I
2: keep that in my, uh, in my middle section of my bag, I try to use it for some good luck.
1: There you go. I like that. That's a good one. So moving on uh, to the rapid fire segment, how it works. I'm going to ask you probably ten, five five to 10 questions uh, in rapid succession. And, and you're going to answer with one word answers here. So, okay. Uh, we'll get the clock rolling. If All you right. Can, let's give this a try. try. <laughs> Alrighty, uh What's your preferred super smash brothers player?
2: Super smash brothers.
1: From 64 and 64.
2: Never heard of it.
1: Oh, no. All right, who's your favorite (laughs) tennis player?
2: Florian Meyer.
1: If you are forced to give up one stroke in tennis, what would it be? Backhand. Favorite snack on the court? Dates. Favorite drink on the court? Water. Favorite thing to do in your spare time, non-tennis related? Watch hockey. Best tennis court surface? Clay. Most entertaining player on the tour right now? Fabio Fognini. Favorite TV show?
2: CSI Miami.
1: Favorite song right now?
2: Start from scratch.
1: <laughs> Who's that by? The game. Oh, nice. Uh, uh, favorite meal off the court? Indian food. Uh, favorite sports star, non tennis related?
2: Pavel Datsuk, hockey player.
1: And finish this sentence my favorite thing about a fresh can of tennis balls is the smell. <laughs> every that and that that ends it right there and, and at yeah. the uh, end of the interview everybody has said that and i say this every time really? i think so we've done I, I don't even know how many interviews at this point a lot uh chris eubank said smacking serves at like 130 miles an hour or something like that but everybody else has a smell yeah that's, that's from what i would right? yeah <laughs> classic right uh but patrick thank you so much you've been really generous with your time Thanks, uh, well, for
0: we'll having, having me for now. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks you for up everything. will 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 Thank you uh, for listening to my conversation with Patrick. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, He definitely provided a lot of unique perspectives there with, you know, him growing up playing at the USTA headquarters down in Florida, and then also his his crazy trip to Europe this summer and just his whole approach to the game. As I mentioned earlier, uh, definitely be sure to check out Zane Khan, who we're releasing an exclusive article and interview this Wednesday and Thursday. Zane just turned pro and has had an impressive junior career to say the least, but the fact that. At 15, he turned pro. It's going to be a a very, very interesting conversation. We've also got some exclusive coverage of the U.S. Open. And I know know, the tennis community is very excited about the U.S. Open coming up here in less than two weeks. So we're going to have exclusive coverage there. And then also we have apparel coming soon. We just ordered some T-shirts that I think a lot of you in the tennis community are going to be able to relate to. So definitely stay tuned there and look for... Uh, more coming in the future from the Crack team. But as always, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes at Cracked Rackets and go follow the Twitter and Instagram and, and like our Facebook page. We appreciate the support and uh, we're only three weeks in, but because of you, um, you know, the sky's the limit here at Cracked Rackets. Thank you so much and we look forward to Zane Con on Thursday. A more Alone every day it's the brain of pleasure